So it's season three. <laughs> and every February I say, oh, no, no, it's going to be fine. Let's just plan as usual. We're going to do a read-along. And every February, one week before my book is due, <laughs> I say, oh, shit, Jen. <laughs> I would like everybody to know that I do try and sound the warning bell all week. I don't accommodate warning bells well. <laughs> I've noticed. You just ignore them. I'll be like, hey, you know, maybe we should do something else this week. And then, well, I just, I, I do just ignore that. Like, I just, I can't, I can't be bothered with that. It's not Saturday morning yet. <laughs> so, welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. Welcome. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels, and this week, I'm writing one. <laughs> That's it. It's just a one-week process. And I am Jennifer Prokop, and I read romance novels and critique them. Um, and we were going to do a read-along of Mary Bailey's A Matter of Class, and I'm sure some of you have already done the reading. Well done, students. It's next week. But I have not done the reading, and it's probably next week. <laughs> probably. We'll see. Um, it will be the next read-along. Yeah, it will be the next read-along. It's just a question but of you when. Might, you know, it's... It's 2021, you guys, and it's just hard out here. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's so hard. Um, but no, honestly, I can't even blame this on the pandemic. I'm like this every year. Those of you who have been listening to us for multiple seasons know that I'm like this every year. Um, but here we are. Welcome to the process. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it's interesting because it actually usually gives us, it nets us an episode like this, which is like, I always think a fun, different kind of episode. See, we're trying to be positive about it. So let me tell everybody what I suggested we do to Sarah. For Sa- I suggested to Sarah that we should talk about today, which is a couple weeks ago, I write um, with a huge influx, maybe, of Bridgerton readers to the genre, or not. We don't really know yet. Um, although I think... I think that's a lie. I think we know. There's a lot of people selling a lot of books, especially historicals. Um, I asked on Twitter, like, what do you give people as an article or a piece to to readers new to the genre to help them explain romance? Like, help them understand romance. And believe it or not, there wasn't actually a whole lot. Like, there were sort of bits and pieces of things that people had talked about. But one of the things that is an an eternal frustration, I think, for romance readers is, why don't people understand what romance is? Why is Nicholas Sparks or Me Before You ending up on best romance lists? War and Peace. Anna Karenina. (laughs) Lolita. If she gets hit by a train, it's not a romance. (laughs) But... I think this is this real eternal struggle. And so what we thought we would do, and this is going to be review for a lot of our listeners, but I hope still interesting, is what are the ins and outs of this genre or the the things that we all know and understand so well, but that, you know, your local librarian might not know or your, you know, friend who watched Bridgerton and watched Virgin River and loved it and wants to read some books. Like, how can we help... Um, people that are outside or adjacent to the genre kind of understand the, all the internal rules that we know so well that we almost don't even think about them, I think. No, it feels like we only ever think about these internal rules when they're broken. Yes. Yeah. So, and that's when we get really mad and the rest of the world is like, what is wrong with romance? <laughs> and we're like, let's fight. <laughs> <laughs> and all 
also it's the end of February, so we've sort of been going. It feels like this this month especially. I do feel like the media has our number in February. Oh yeah, and God. they know. I mean, sure. like if, at first it was nobody ever talked about Roe ensembles ever, and then it was like a fun story to write in on February. Valentine's Day, right? About like those crazy covers, those <laughs> wacky covers. Fabio. Yeah. Gravity defying hair. <laughs> right. Um, but now people do talk about romance more. And so I think like a lot of online news outlets that shall go unnamed here because I'm not interested in giving them credit or clicks use attacking romance as a as a way to um get attention from romance especially this and so this year has felt especially difficult i think because of bridgerton because right. there's this like giant juggernaut of a thing happening in the background you know more than 82 million households no doubt by now and then you know reggae jean page on saturday night live and like Every you can't turn around the Bridgerton musical on TikTok, and yes, right. you can't turn around without hitting a romance novel. And so the media in February has been a lot. I've been thinking a lot about it too, in terms of like kind of larger culturally. Fifty Shades was a big tsunami like this, but social media didn't exist in the same way, and so it was easy. I think. To spin a narrative that was sort of a top-down narrative about, like, these dumb ladies buying this dumb book. And these moms like porn. BDSM. Why do these people want someone hitting them? Or, like, whatever those narratives were. Whereas I think the big difference now is that we can have lots of grassroots critique, commentary, cultural analysis of Bridgerton that isn't just driven by top-down forces. You know, and we did this already with Fifty Shades. I'm not going to sure. rehash this, but like it's, there's a very big difference in that one of those things was of a time. Like yes. we talked on in the Fifty Shades episode that like it's sort of, it's a thing that could not, like it worked in 2011 mm-hmm. and now 10 years later, it just is a non thing. Like if you on the reread, you're like, why is this a thing? Right. And that's because it was a book that was a touchstone at a flashpoint in time. Right. Right? Versus what's happening with Bridgerton right now is like a layered kind of a... There's a lot of conversation about what the show is doing, what it means, how it's impacting race and gender and politics. And then on top of it, just like a really fun thing to watch. And then also there's like all this cunnilingus in it. Like, what does it mean for the way sex is portrayed on the page and like, and on the screen, on on the screen, I mean. And so it's a really, it's a very different kind of convert. It feels like immensely more nuanced. I think we actually are in agreement. What I think I'm trying to say is because of social media, because we have access to more voices, yeah, yeah, that is why it feels more nuanced. Like, right, we can have brilliant people not just writing in the Los Angeles re- review of books about Bridgerton, but also writing amazing Twitter threads that we all can kind of read or, you know. And so I do think that it's more nuanced because there are more voices we're able to hear. But yeah. I also think that one of the things I keep thinking about is, you know, for me and you, it always just comes back to romance. Like, Bridgerton's a fun little romp, but I want to read more books. 
<laughs> and I want people who go to the library, their local library, or who look to lists online, or who are looking for like, hey, how does this genre work? I want them to get good answers. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, something that I thought would be like, oh yeah, here's this easy primer on the genre. And then I was like, oh, our genre is really complicated. <laughs> was it time is a flat circle right now for me. So I apologize for not knowing this, but it was our what to read after Bridgerton episode. No, it was two weeks ago. Cause last week yes. we had Kate on. Right. So when we posted that episode, a librarian retweeted mm-hmm. it and they were like, Hey, library Twitter, like I have a gift for you. And it, and like so many librarians were like, Oh, this is great. This is what I've been looking for. Because I think that I think there I think romance has for many years had a problem with um reader advisory. Yes. That is not because librarians haven't acknowledged that romance is an important genre. This is not that. Right. But I think that unless you have and we know this from book selling too, which is the problem with romance and indie bookstores, yes, is unless you have somebody in the job who understands who has like internalized the structure and theme of romance and the the value of romance for a reader, which is impossible to do unless you've either learned about it or ex- experienced it as a reader. Right. Unless you're somebody in the job, you just can't. You can't possibly know it all. It's huge. No. And so this is why you hear so many times, and I'm sure many of our librarian listeners and our bookseller listeners can, you know, speak to this is you hear so often about librarians and booksellers who have patrons in their stores and libraries um, who are voracious romance readers, but who they never speak to. They never interact with them because voracious romance readers know that the odds of them finding somebody who can really help them when they're looking for a very specific thing are slim to none. It's our, it's like interstitials and Twitter. That's what you you have access to. And I'm not, I'm not mad about it. I mean, the truth is like, I am a very, um, like casual reader of like thrillers, right? Like, but I'm in no way an expert, right? And if someone was like, oh, I've read Jack Reacher, what could I read next? I'd be like, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. Because that subgenre of that genre is massive and huge, and people who are really steeped in it, you know, how do you even, like, go about finding those folks? So I think that's, but I do think in romance, the the additional barrier is the built-in sexism and the built-in um, sort of disdain of the genre that has existed for so long, right? Because the truth is probably people are like skulking around in their library, like scooting up to the romance section, right? Like there's ways in which that shame about the genre has been built in for a really long time. One of the things that I think happens a lot as romance gets bigger and as these conversations are out of our borders. That's where we see like this confusion. And that is something that's really frustrating to us. And I think it functions in a lot of ways. Like one is I think that now the mainstream like meanness or misunderstanding like almost feels more willful, right? Like at some point, how hard are we going to fight? And people are just going to be like, it's a it's a romance people kiss in it. And we're like, no, that's not what it means. And I think it really functions as, like, one of the things I said once in a piece I wrote is, like, it's almost like a, 
a bulwark against like this rising tide of romance acceptance, right? That need to like push it back down. And you know, whatever. People are gonna always be that way, maybe, but I do think that there are lots of people, lots of like you know, librarians and booksellers and readers out there who are just like, hey, I love this thing and I want to be able to explain it to other people. Yeah. And so what we thought we'd do, now that we're however many minutes in, is like really kind of talk about some of the biggest, like cornerstone, I don't know, like tenets maybe of of the genre so that when people are kind of like, hey, I want to learn more about romance, here are like the basics, right? Here are the things that are just super important. Yes. So, I mean, I think we have to start at the top. Yes. Which is the H-E-A. Uh, which means happy ever after. Happily ever after. Comes from fairy tales. It sure does. <laughs> as we talked about last week. And here's the thing. I think that this is one of those moments where, like, it comes from fairy tales. And so that should be the kind of guiding principle for you as you think about romance. Like, there's so many conversations that you have about romance when you write and think and, you know, read the genre that end with like, well, but I mean, it's such a fantasy or it's the expectations or the, you know, you can't possibly think this is real. Like, how are you ever going to like, this is not the way men are. This is not the way love is. Like, love is complicated and, you know, sticky. Yes. Sure. Yes. All those things and, are like, true. We all know that. But ultimately, like, that's not what a romance promises you. Romance is, well, it does promise you love is sticky, right? But it doesn't, but it promises you also that, like, all of that mess is part of it and it's going to be okay at the end. Like, and there is something to be said for the fantasy piece, even in the most contemporary, realistic fiction that we have in the genre. Like, ultimately, people finding each other and loving each other is magic. I think it's important, too, for me to really, like, root this belief in romance itself. And what I mean by that is sometimes when I read, again, like, sort of, like, the adjacent people or people trying to understand it, they're like, oh, yeah, it goes back to, (laughs) you know, I don't know, Beowulf. Okay, it doesn't. who, Who knows? To me, there's a really strong connection between, like, the thread of romance that goes back to the belief that at some point marriage became not about, like, a a monetary arrangement. And we started to really, like, believe that culturally maybe, like, ro- like marriage was about, like, love. And nowadays, most people entering into any sort of marriage or, like, moving in together, any kind of long-term commitment, are doing it because they think it's going to work out with this, with these people or this person. Emotionally. Emotionally. And I think that that is what romance is really doing, is sort of saying to everybody who has ever made that leap of giving someone else their apartment key, right, that, like, that is not a foolish choice, That this is something that is going to, like, that if you worked at it, you, that could work out for you. And I think that we, a lot of people, you know, really do want to believe that. Like, if I, if I am in a long-term partnership with someone, that it's going to work out. And no one goes into that thinking, like, oh, (laughs) I'm going to be one of the ones who ends up divorced and miserable or whatever. And I think that also the HEA you know, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but 
there is a real sense of the happily ever after being um powerful yes. in some way. When we talk about romance as the literature of hope, right? This idea that someone, I mean, we, Jen and I have talked about this. We've extrapolated this out, like, into, like, it means it's about feminism. It's about, you know, intersectionality. It's about, you know, smashing the patriarchy. It's about, you know, all the toxic masculinity, these kind of big idea, you know, uh, things in the world. But fundamentally, when we're talking about the, hip- the happily ever after and we're talking about hope, it's the hope that at some point, another person or more than one other person will find you in the world and see you warts and all yeah and love you unconditionally and that's very powerful and i know that to many many people it sounds derivative or reductive or like childish great then romance isn't for you fine move it along <laughs> yeah, I mean, but fundamentally, it feels like in the when we move through the world, and it feels more like that to me now than it did maybe even a year ago, right? Like mm-hmm. as we yeah. move through the world, it's those connections with other people that make it worthy. I say that as somebody who is sitting, who is sat in my house for yeah. a year, yes. right? Like just wanting to like see another person's face yes when like the critique is like that's not realistic i don't see the hea as meaning like these people will never experience other any other bumps in the road no but that the book has proven to me that they can tackle problems together and come out on the other side so to people who don't understand the genre, I think it's worth having a conversation now about the way that authors come the the covenant what I call the covenant yes with that the reader ha- that authors have with their readers. I call it a covenant for a reason, not just because Cressley Cole put all those covenants in that <laughs> Kiss of right. the Demon King book. Um, it's unbreakable, right? Yes. This is the a promise. The, the promise of the romance, when you come into a Sarah McLean novel or an anyone novel, right, is I am going to take you on a journey. It is going to be hard sometimes. There are going to be moments where I manipulate your emotions <laughs> as, a, as a writer, right? Like, my goal is to rip the heart out of your chest at some point during this book and then, like, place it back in there so that you've had the full experience of reading a romance novel. But at the end, we are going to arrive at a place where you are safe and satisfied. And that, in a romance novel, is an HEA. In a thriller, it's, or in a mystery, it's, we're going to find the killer. Right, exactly. You know, in a thriller, it's going to be, you know, Jack Reacher. Sure. Kills all the bad guys, honestly. (laughs) He kills all the bad guys. Sorry, that's true, though. (laughs) Justice will be served. Jack Reacher buys a new toothbrush and moves on. Yeah. I would say it's like justice is served. So it like it it satisfies a different part of like your brain. The good guys are gonna win. Yeah. I mean, I think that satisfies the same part of your brain. Like in a romance, the good guys win. Um it's a different kind of, you know, triumph. But that covenant is so bedrock to the concept of the genre that when it is fucked with yes we get angry <laughs> and what i mean by that is nicholas sparks <laughs> yes 
Yeah. And I think, now here's what I will say. Asterisk, footnote, Nicholas Sparks. Nicholas Sparks does not want to be in our pool. No. Stop putting him in our pool. Right. He doesn't want to be here. And, like, he's right not to want to be here. He doesn't belong here. Sure. He doesn't even go here. (laughs) For the record, like, Nicholas Sparks is probably a lovely person. Of course. And he's laughing all the way to the bank. It's fine. I know. <laughs> he like, care. this is why I want to say, this is not about him. No, but, no. Like, stop it. <laughs> so let's talk actually about, I, I will admit right now that I don't know that I've ever read a Nicholas Sparks novel, but I have I read seen The Notebook. The notebook. <laughs> you have seen that. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Most importantly, have you seen the video of the 2005 MTV Movie Awards where Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams win Best Kiss? No. Or The Notebook? Holy cats, Jennifer. <laughs> you got, I'm going to send you this video. You got to watch it. We're going to put it in show notes. Of course Everybody we are. needs to immediately stop listening, go watch this video, and then come back around because this is also the promise of the premise of a good romance novel, and we'll get to it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm excited. You've seen, the, you've seen the notebook. Yes. Well, but so, yeah. So here's the thing about the notebook, right? Like it is delivering a lot of standard romance content. But then, at the end, it takes, it snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, or whatever the fuck that phrase is. No, is that the right one? No, defeat from the jaws of victory. Yes, I was like, it snatches, right? I'm like, both, but Sure, because, and you know what, again, if what you want is a straight-up tearjerker, then The Fault in Our Stars or The Notebook are going to deliver that to you, right? you. You will be, well, that has, like, a lot of horrible rep about disabilities that people are just offended by at a visceral level. Correctly. Right. Exactly. But, like, let's talk about the fault in our stars in the notebook, right? Like, yes, I tell kids this all the time. I'm like, there's a reason we read books that make us feel this way. If you are, like, I mean, right now, God, I have so many feelings, and if I read one of those books, I'm, like, wiping snot off my face. I'm crying so hard, right? That is a legitimate thing to want out of a book. It is not a legitimate thing to want out of a romance. It's the exact opposite. And that's why The Notebook, and that's why Nicholas Sparks, right? But I can see why people get confused, right? Sure. Because if you're reading, say, I mean, Lisa, me, Mm -hmm. people who really pull your, like, rip your heart out when they write a book, right? Um, Who, like, aren't afraid to just, like, really drop the characters heavy into, like, an oubliette and leave them there for a few chapters. Yeah. Like, the idea of that emotion... That vis- that is yes. the visceral emotion that you get, which you also get from these kind of, like, sad love story books. But what people are forgetting is that essential ending. Like, you have to dig them out of the hole. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, and what's interesting is that I think in some of these books, and I don't know because I haven't – I don't read them as a matter of course. But, like, I think at the end – in some of these books, there is a kind of like, and so she walked on alone or whatever. And it feels like, I don't know, empowering in some way. But like, I don't want her alone at the end. I want her with like that gorgeous woman that she fell in love with. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you what, though. It, this week, okay, so I've been watching WandaVision. Would I like this? 
you would have to be very familiar with the Marvel Universe, and you are not. And so I'm not sure. Okay. And what happens is Wanda, so Wanda is a character who has been, um, she's lost her, her brother, and she's lost her husband. She's a witch, right? She's, she's a witch, yes. Twins that they find in the cages at the end of Civil War? Yes. Okay, so okay. She, she's really powerful. Don't worry about I it, I know right? all those Captain America movies. Sure. <laughs> and what happens is she's really dealing with grief, and, like, the show is sort of unpacking, like, what that grief looks like. But in this ep- the episode that just came out yesterday, um, Vision is talking to her, and he honestly says, like, the most— Vision played by Paul Bettany. He, well, he's got a lot of red makeup on. for a on. long time was, like, basically <laughs> just every hero of my books. Yeah, I mean— He lives in my neighborhood. Does he really? Then he, then he was in my neighborhood a lot, and I was like, um, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, it's fine. It's not that exciting anymore. <laughs> and she's just like, I'm just so sad. I don't know how to handle this. And he says something to her that is basically like— But what is grief? If not love, persevering. And it's beautiful. It's this beautiful moment where, and and there is a, a lot of worth in unpacking grief, especially right now when we are going through some things. But at the end of a romance, I want those characters to have experienced it and be in a place where they can feel like they're looking forward with hope. And so that's either the HEA, right? Or it's the HFN. And so like often in a romance, like we'll get, you know, if someone's a widow or a widower, it's been years and they're ready to like move on again, right? It's picking people up from where they were, but it's not that they're going to put that on page and leave us and leave those characters there. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really important for understanding the difference. Like, but you know, between the end of the fault in our stars, like yes, she's going to bravely walk on, right? And a book with you know someone who has lost someone, but they're ready to like love again. And I think also this is why we're right now. I mean, we're in a really awesome place in romance where there's a lot more representation of all these. Diff- of different people experiencing different lives. So, you know, where it used to be that you'd get, like, one widow book a year, now, like, there are more widows out there to for us to see if that's an experience that we're interested in. There are, you know, characters who are experiencing loss or experiencing, you know, um, you know, challenges in life. There are characters with disabilities. There are characters who, um, you know, there are fat characters. There are characters who, like, are living living in the world and, like, living and loving happily in the world in real life. And now they are reflected more and more on the page. Can I ask a question? When you think of the difference between the HEA and then the HFN, which is the happily for now, now. how would you explain that to someone who, who asked so I think happy for now is about an awareness that there is more life for these two on their own. Yeah. Like and so they're 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 with each other and they are they are when I say with each other I mean like they are supporting each other and partnered mm-hmm. in a way that makes you feel like together they will like face whatever is to come and move forward through it. But if either for age, I mean, like, I think happy for now is how YA romance has yes, to end. Absolutely. I mean, like, there's just— That's what I was going to say, too. In 2021, like, 
you just, I mean, like the odds of you being 17 and falling in love in 2021 and still being together when you're 40 are, I imagine, pretty slim. Right. Um, or at least challenged. Um, so I think there's age that comes into play. I think in things like fantasy or, um, you know, sci-fi, like maybe there's something like you could see that more in those in those worlds because there's like a big war to be fought or like a larger sure right issue at play. But I don't actually think. I mean, I guess there are a number of them in indie romance. It's not HFNs are much more common, I think, in in independently published romance than they are in traditionally published romance. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I mean, some people use HFN just to say like, oh, well, they don't get married at the end. And I don't think that matters. No, I think that's a big change for sure. I think now that, you know, people are kind of together and it doesn't have anything to do with marriage or kids or whatever. It can just be, you know, they're, they are where they are right now. Sometimes I feel like there's a tendency to slap, maybe not as much anymore, slap HFN on a a romance with like a non-traditional HEA. Yeah, like poly romance. And I was like, let's not do that. (laughs) It's funny that you say that because all of of the poly romance that I've read that I've really loved has been like, oh my God. Yeah. These people are going to be together forever. Like, perfect relationship. But I think like an example I was thinking of is... um, a book I really like by Tamsin Parker with like Blaze Bellamy, the one with Blaze. I remember her name because that book is like <laughs> it's a, a great fucking, name. It, she's like a speed skater. Name is Destiny. Of course it is. Of course it is. And Tamsin Parker fucking knows <laughs> that everybody. You guys, I wrote the name, I wrote the sentence name is Destiny in my manuscript yesterday and then I took it out. <gasps> I thought it appeared in every book. It doesn't? It doesn't. No. <laughs> It, it appears, appears a couple in of every times. book in your mind. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> All right, the book is Fire on the Ice, and what it is is it is a figure skater and a speed skater, and the speed skater, it, and the, they're in like a this figure skater is like I am in a committed one way relationship with you, but the speed skater is polyamorous, and so she is able essentially in an open relate. They're in an open relationship, and I could totally see. I think at the time someone called it an HFN, and I was like, but why? Like. They are, they're in a happy place where they know what they want from each other and are perfectly satisfied. Like, it's all good. Maybe that's why when I say, like, I really feel, I feel most comfortable using it with age romance because I'm, like, in all the other ways, it's, like, grownups know what they want. Yeah. It is also used in urban fantasy, though, in a continuing series where we aren't sure kind of what's coming next, though. But, like, you already talked about that, so. I feel like if we're, if we're really sort of, doing instructional work on what a romance is, we have to talk about character. Yes. There was, I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast. I know you and I have talked about this piece, but we'll put it in show notes. Um, There's this great piece that I read right after Bridgerton came out where they were talking about, um, I think it was in the Times, New York Times, and it, um, it it talked about adaptations, romance novels and adaptation, and the challenges of adapting a romance novel to screen. Yeah. And the showrunner of Outlander, whose name I cannot remember, um, said the challenge with it, the fundamental challenge with translating romance to screen is that you cannot film a thought. Mm -hmm. And romance is so much about thought. It's about emotion and character, the character work that happens internally, right? Yes. Because, so 
I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but we we're having, I was, it was another writer and we were having a conversation about how in order to believe that a romance novel is successful, like in order to feel like at the end you have had a successful journey as a romance reader, you have to see both characters evolve in some way. Right? Yes, I would or agree with that entirely. If, they're, if it's a triad or, or you know, a polyamorous relationship, all characters must evolve. So they have to be in one place at the beginning of the book and at a different place in the end of the book. And that seems logical to readers. Like, sure. obviously that's the case. But it's actually not that logical all the time. Like, there are a lot of books in the world where the characters don't evolve. Um, and part of the evolution of that character in romance, the part of the way you evolve a character in romance is internally. Like they go through an internal struggle where they have to come to terms with themselves, their past, their baggage, their whatever, right? Alongside another person, sometimes aided by that person, sometimes like informed by that person, sometimes just because they want to be more for that person or be present for that person. And then at the end, they have transformed into something else, into something that arguably is more perfect for a relationship. That's like the alchemy of romance, though. We take these two individuals at the beginning, and they change enough to convince us at the end that they are going to, like, be able to have a happily ever after. And if you're working with the kind of conflict that many of us are working with, right, then that's even more alchemical, right? Because there's, there is a real moment for every book, in every book where the reader is like, oh shit, like these two people changed. And if you've done it well as a writer, you haven't seen, the reader hasn't seen it happen. The opposite is when readers do see it happen or they feel like steps are missing, that feels when they're being shoved into the change. Yes. And that's when we as readers, as a reader, when I, at the end, think, I'm not sure I believe these two people will be happily ever after. Ah. That is when I would say the character work, that character development, there's been missteps or there's been missing pieces. It's funny that you say that because I do think fundamentally that is the marker of a great, like, that is what makes a bad romance novel. Mm -hmm. The idea that at the end you don't believe it. Yeah. I should say not a bad romance novel. It, it It's what makes a romance novel wa- not work for a reader. Sure. Right. So something comes along and sort of like magically fixes something, and what readers are left thinking is, but that's not going to convince me that this works. Right? So it has to be that that character work for however many characters are entering into this romantic relationship and can have the H.E. at the end, it has to be seamless. And big jumps where all of a sudden somebody's different on page, we need to see that interiority to have it work. And that's what makes it really difficult. And it's what makes people not quite understand what they're reading when they come into a romance novel. Like, I think, you know, I say I laugh all the time. I've I surely have said this on the podcast, but one of my very favorite moments is when Jamie Green, who used to review romance novels for the New York Times and was a fairly new, fairly new to the genre. She'd been reading for a few years, but she, she was not, she didn't, she didn't come up through it the way you and I did. And we had drinks at one point and she said, you know what's fascinating about romance? Everybody in romance notices what everybody else's eye color is. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, 
Yeah. And she's like, that doesn't happen in other books. And sure, and I'm like, truthfully, it doesn't happen in real life either, unless somebody has like, sure. I mean, like, of course, I try, like, look people in the eye. But if you ask me, I mean, I have talked to my daughter's friend's dad a, a thousand times. times. And if you ask me what color his eyes were, I don't think I, like, I surely could not tell you. Right. right? And so, but in romance, everything is so, like, there's a hyper awareness, right? It's that moment when the hero rolls up his sleeve and you yep. see the, like, cords of his forearms or, his like, the jaw in his jaw. He leans. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's just always a sense of like the, an awareness, a hyper awareness of everything going on around you and a hyper awareness of the emotions you're feeling at any yes. given time. And that can feel, I imagine, for someone new to romance can be like, this feels like insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why are these people so hyper aware of everything? But the reality is, is like, because that's the way romance works. Sure. Well, and I there are so many lines in romance where someone like is able to see the emotions in someone's eyes. Oh. Across a room. Across a dark room. Of course. <laughs> and I I tell this story a lot like I like I love the movie Speed, but there's a part where Jeff Daniels is essentially right about to get blown up and there's this close up on his eyes and you really can see in his eyes like this flash of like oh shit I'm about to be blown up the regret it's all really done in that in his, literally in that his eyes and I was like no wonder I fucking love this movie and no wonder romance love this movie because this is a movie that understands the way that romance communicates is by a lot of very specific things in body language in eye contact in and all of that stuff is the the language of romance that yeah I mean people are like why don't they just talk to each other well because that's not how it works yeah, subtext is everything in romance. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting because, again, I think this is a structural thing that is part of the DNA and the bones of the genre and perceived by those outside of the genre as shoddy writing. Yeah. Right? Like, I shouldn't have to be told how, like, what emotions he's feeling. And I'm using he intentionally here, right? Like, I shouldn't have to be told how the hero is engaging with his feelings. And it's like, no, but you have to see that he is experiencing them for the first time, this dummy, who's never felt sorrow or fear or panic or want or love. Any of that, right? Right? Like, all of those emotions, his brain is just primordial until <laughs> or yeah. primitive in some way before he gets those emotions inputted into him. And so, but when we've talked about this a lot, that like, this is the point of the alpha feeling emotions, right? And still, I think from the outside, there is a sense of this writing being juvenile in some way because it packs so much emotional the emotion in instead of acknowledging and valuing the fact that the art of the genre is about internal conflict that all that other business the like bells and whistles that are moving the pages forward it are they are literally there to move the pages forward the money is in the emotional conflict. And here's the other thing. And I want to really then, again, like if we're talking back about like the the bones of the genre, like where this stuff came from, you know, when you are 
underrepresented or marginalized or you're like not like at the top of the pile when you're a prey and not a predator you have to understand everything about who it is that's hunting you right like we talk i mean like predators have a bunch of eyes right like scorpions have five pairs of eyes but people right like and so i think about how carefully i know how to read the body language of like my boss or right like and so for women and for under you know marginalized people for like you have to know everything there is about how people process their feelings without them saying it and i think that's why it comes into the genre in the 50s and 60s and 70s because you know women who for started writing these books and it was at that point at that time really by women for other women kind of only many many women writing yeah they were experts at evaluating the emotional states of people around them based only on this information because that's the only information they could get well i mean it's not like men are often i mean again i i apologize for generalizing but like society doesn't teach men how to feel no no, it doesn't. As a culture, we don't teach men to say, "Oh, that's making me sad." Right, <laughs> like, which right. would be helpful to women. Right, and or, so of course to everyone, especially when it comes to like things like anger and right. Yeah. Like we are so, I am so fine tuned. It's like I'm a tuning fork to like any disturbance in that field. So it makes sense to me that 50 years later, romance would have developed a very nuanced language about reading that, like those signals that aren't said, but are still out there to be read. So I want to just point to something in pop culture that I think helps. Like if you're new, I don't, I mean, I don't know. By now you probably have either turned us off if you're not interested in romance or whatever. But if you happen to still be listening and you are new to romance, trying to understand, um, there's a show on Masterpiece Theater Mystery. Um, I think it's called something else, but (laughs) whatever. It doesn't matter. It's on PBS. It's called Miss Scarlet and the Duke. And it's a Victor. It's six episodes. It's like basically Victorian lady detective and a, the detective inspector at Scotland Yard, and they get into detective shenanigans because sure. she's a lady shenanigan maker and he's a crusty Scotland Yardsman, and she just drives him mad. <laughs> amazing (laughs) and they're like at each other's throats the whole time and they absolutely want a bone until next week but the they don't spoiler so there's a lot a lot a lot of like pent-up sexual frustration in this show that kind of murdered me (laughs) because it didn't end with kissing but that's fine i feel i feel fine about it um but the point is that there's an episode of this show that i think is like the perfect It is actually a romance novel on film, and it's episode five, and so, and it's, for those of you who have seen the show, it is the scene, it is a show where Scarlett discovers in her father's, her dead father's journal, the address of, like, a marking about a cell number in an abandoned prison in London, Mm -hmm. and so she takes herself to this abandoned prison by herself to like investigate oh, Charlotte. what happened <laughs> to her father's, you know, whatever. What happened to her father, right? Because her father's dead. And it begins with the Duke in his office at Scotland Yard changing into a tuxedo. 
So it's basically after four episodes of sexual tension, it's mm-hmm. basically now here's pornography of this like hot <laughs> Scottish man changing into a tuxedo. Sure. It's a lot. Um, and then and then he's somebody's like, Scarlet's missing. And then he's like, shit, where did the that woman go? Yes, that infuriating right. woman. Of course. And then of course, Jen, what does he do? You haven't watched this show. No, he goes to find her and then he freaks out at her because she put herself in danger. Exactly. And of course, while he's freaking out at her in the prison, what happens? Does he like he hits something, a wall, maybe? Well, there's a bad guy who like turns up because these idiots have been yelling at each other. Sure. Instead of actually fu- like looking for a bad guy is there lothair punching mean, yeah <laughs> oh oh yeah there's there's like all sorts of punching right i mean it's exactly it goes exactly you don't have to watch this episode no it's to like exactly no. yeah. a romance novel and the reason why it is is because these dummies are talking to each other the whole time in like bantery like at each other's at each other's throats while they are in an abandoned prison where surely many bad guys have decided to take up residence. And like the whole time I'm like, Eric watched it with me and he was like, I don't understand why they're lingering. Right. (laughs) And I was like, romance reasons like romance reasons purely romance reasons right because this is we're putting them in danger we're giving them a chance to essentially this is where danger banging would come in if it wasn't on at 7 p.m on sunday (laughs) on pbs right yeah right (laughs) and then but instead we've got these two people who absolutely are perfect for each other in this moment and it's the two of them and the rest of the world just just there for color yeah well, and I think romance reasons then is like a shorthand you and I use a lot to like explain like just kind of how romance works. Like the things romance cares about and the things romance doesn't. And the things romance cares about is getting love interests together and and because keeping you cannot yeah, keeping them there and because you cannot show they can't show each other interiority, banter is always always the train that drives feelings talk. In romance, mm-hmm. right? So I can't tell you how I feel. So we're going to have to banter. We're going to have to, right, like sort of siphon off some of this like energy that we create into some other form that can be seen by the reader, right? And that so that banter becomes like the, I don't know, it's like if you had a chemical in the room and you don't want everyone to pass out from like, breathing noxious love fumes you have to like put some like some kind of dye in it right and that's banter banter lets us see how they are feeling and acting towards each other that's what's going on there that's why yes right all of it which is also why dialogue is so critical to romance and i do think dialogue is way more critical to romance than it is to almost any other genre like hard agree yes I mean, you've just been reading a bunch of Lee Child. It's not like there's a lot of talking going on no, in Lee Child. Uh, are you kidding? <laughs> and when Jack Reacher does talk to people, you're like, shut up and just go Jack, play to your strengths. You're oh. not a great talker. <laughs> no, he's a man of action, right? because well, Jack Reacher has never felt a feeling in his life. Oh, God, no. And when he does, he runs away, gets on the next bus, and drives to the next town. It's like, I need a new Can I go kill? <laughs> <laughs> Jack Reacher doesn't have feelings. My God. <laughs> This is the thing, right? So dialogue becomes 
essential yes. to it. And that, I think, is always the shock for me when I pick up a book that's not a romance novel. And I will say, like, aside from nonfiction, I don't actually read a ton of other fiction because yeah. why would I? <laughs> there isn't enough kissing in it. No. <laughs> so, so, but when I do pick up other fiction, I'm always shocked by, like, how people move the story forward without having people talk. Yeah, right. Um, and so that's another thing where I think often the perception of romance is that it is somehow juvenile or um, unnuanced or right. easy, right? Because all we do is write talking. And how hard could that be because people talk all the time? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> well, yeah, because you got to leave out the boring bits. Right. <laughs> and most of the time when people talk, I mean, you guys listen to us every week. People are boring. (laughs) I'm like, how do people listen? You know, I think the other thing, though, about talk, though, is one of the big critiques then of romance is like, but this could have just been solved by people talking to each other. And I was like, okay, but listen. Here's where realism does come in. I I think a couple things. One is, I think the importance then, and there's a lot of conversation in romance about the low moment, right? Which is like, at the end, something has to happen. Something always happens, this like late stage breakup or fight. And then they go to their separate corners and have to decide whether or not they're going to be together. This works for people or doesn't. But I would argue that it is, it has a very important function in most romance novels, which is You, as the reader, have to now evaluate, should they get back together or not? Do these two really belong together, right? It's the part where you, as the reader, I think, really come in to play in terms of evaluating, like, does this, do these, do these dummies have a chance? But I also think that it is really important, and you, I would love to hear you talk about it as a writer, can they help each other get through, I mean, all relationships, friendships, parental relationships, neighbor relationships, teacher-student, whoever, have moments of crisis. And at that moment of crisis, uh, is this person or these people going to make things better or worse? I think you have nailed it. I also think that for those of us who use a low moment, this is sometimes referred to as a black moment, too. And when if you're looking at craft text, this is often how it's described. Um, when you are writing that crisis point, that, that moment where all seems totally lost, there has to be a sense of without the other, this won't be as valuable, right? It won't be as successful. And what I mean by that is I've never written a heroine who needed the hero at the end of the book to survive. I've written a lot of heroes who needed the heroine at the end of the book to survive, but that's because that's my kink, right? But the, um, but the, the idea isn't that without these two, they would both like die withered on the vine. The idea is that these two are perfect partners, so when we talk about when we talk about my books, right? Like a McLean novel at the end like she rescues him right back. Like it's always that. It's that pretty woman moment where like what happens after she rescues him right back, right? And the and the idea there for me is about partnership. It's about this idea that ultimately Derek and Sarah stand together, right? St. Vincent and Evie stand together. And you know, my characters 
all those IAD characters, like every, you know, I mean, nobody does this better than Beverly Jenkins, like two characters who just like at the end are stronger for being together. Mm -hmm. And for the, for me as a writer and as a reader, what I want out of that scene is a resolution where I believe that the two of them together are forged in fire, right? Like they are stronger as like a like a blade, like a steel. I like that moment because I will say, like, in my own marriage, like, I can look back at a time and think, that's where... That's it. That was the fire. That was the fire. And maybe I didn't... I did actually know it at the time, but I look back at that and think, like, I can do anything. I did that thing. And I think that that's an imp- it often important for people, they look back at those moments of crisis or of, you know, so again, it doesn't really work for all readers. Like I said, there's lots of discussion about whether or not it's necessary. But I would argue that for me, when we talk about like sort of like, oh, there's like the dumb breakup and it just has to happen at 85% or whatever, that that's, you're talking about authors who aren't doing it as carefully or as well. I mean, I really resist this. This is where I'm going to, I mean, like, whatever. It's my podcast. I get to say it. I resist this as a concept. Like, yeah, the dumb breakup shouldn't be dumb. It shouldn't be dumb. Like, if you are reading and you're like, here we go. This is, we must be at 85% of the book. Yeah. Right? Because here we go. It's, it's happening. Then... We just haven't set it up right for you. I mean, I'm right now, so so I'm going to do some spoilering of my book. I mean, not like huge spoilers, obviously. But so I'm like writing the last 10% right now, right? Which is always hard for me because I think I've talked about this before. But like when I start a book, I know what the last 10% is. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the low moment that we're talking about straight through to the end is like, very clear in my mind from the very, I can't start a book until I know what that looks like. Yeah. Right now I'm writing this and it feels to me when I'm writing it and I hope to readers when they're reading it, it it feels like you're on that final drop of the roller coaster. Yeah. Like, holy crap. There's no stopping this. Like this is whatever is going to happen is happening. And it's not because like Sarah didn't know what was coming next. It's because this is fate, yes. like driving the train. And when it gets stopped, when it finishes and resolves itself, it resolves itself because these two people are stronger together in my case, yes. right? Right. And if you believe that now we are on the final drop of the roller coaster because we've hit 80,000 words and, like, you know, Sarah's on deadline, <laughs> like... I've done I've done it wrong. So my recommendation to you is if you get to that point in somebody's book, mine included, and you feel that way, my book isn't the right book for you. Right. You gotta go looking for another one that feels more believable. Um, but this conversation comes up every once in a while, you know, for uh, I remember about I don't know, six or seven years ago, I was with Bella Andre and she said, conflict is something that traditional publishing invented to sell books, right? And in romance. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by this as like a craft question, like as a Mm -hmm. writerly question. Right. Because I don't really understand. I mean, anybody who's read my books knows like, I don't know what to do if the books aren't high conflict because how do you get the page to turn, right? 
But there are a lot of writers who write it, low conflict, really fabulous. Right. Tessa Dare is basically my foil, right? right? Like her books, nobody ever dies in an explosion in her books. No. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> right. But like, and you need both of us, right? To right. like, we are, we exist. One of us cannot exist without the other. That's right. And, exactly. But my point is that even in those books where no one dies in an explosion, conflict still exists. Like, Tessa's books are deeply emotional, sure. right? There's, like, they, like, pull you, they pull your heart sp- heartstrings and make you feel like these two people are forged in fire. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is this idea of the dumb breakup is not a good one. You're being kinder, I would say, <laughs> as a reader, the dumb breakup is just poorly written. And you know what I mean? Meaning the the character work wasn't done. Well, I guess my question is, what do you want instead? What is the point, if not for that moment? When it works, I have seen these two people care- developing to the point where they really then have to make a decision. Do we want to stay together or not? And that's what that moment is supposed to be for us and for them. Yeah. Do these people, are they going to decide to make it work or not? I guess, yeah. I guess that's my thing. Like, I don't, I don't know how you envision the book going if that part of the book makes you uncomfortable, right? Like, because then you've just read a story of two decent people falling in love, I guess. Sure. Which is great. But also, why? But, you know, I guess I would say <laughs> I, I am a decent person who fell in love and I still had to really, like, let go of some things. I ha- Right? Like, my personal experience of this, like, is – it's still hard. Yeah. I guess right? true. No, I mean, same, right? Like, you have – relationships are not easy. No one has ever blown up in any of my – like, in my life, right? Like, no, that – like neither. That right? sucks. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, everybody. Like, Eric's never, like – professed his love to me while I've been unconscious. No punching has ever been done in the course of my relationship, right? Nobody's ever punched anybody out. Nobody. (laughs) Imagine being married to me, man. Imagine. (laughs) But emotionally, there have been explosions and punches and whatever, right? Emotionally, I we've still suffered through that. And I think that that's the part where that right. it's it's metaphorical in a lot of ways for how emotionally hard it is to like really choose to be with other people yeah in any yeah. way yeah so that's why there are these kind of big set piece endings and the the set piece doesn't have to be i say big set piece because in historicals they often are big right. set pieces right right um but I think that in contemporaries, there there are beautiful big endings. Of course. That make you feel like these two people are having something magical. Well, and I think that's why, like, and, you know, fair or not, there's always a discussion about, like, is it romance? Is it, like, women's fiction? And one of the ways I determine that for me, because I don't think there's, like, a right answer, is... Is the conflict at the end, whatever it is that's, like, causing this separation or these moments of crisis, is it something that has to be solved by both of them? Because if it's not, if it's, like, something 
that, and it's often the woman, right? These are, you know, those books are almost always MF and, you know, is it something the woman's like, I've solved it. And then she comes back to her new man and he's like, great job, honey. <laughs> right. Then to me, and, but and they're happily ever after. That's nice. But that to me does not make it a romance because what I want to know is that the forged in fire part, meaning things that happen to both of them will be solved by both of them. And that, so for me, like, what when I get to the end of a book, am I like, was this conflict something they needed to solve together to move forward, or the group of people needed to solve together to move forward, or is it just something that, like, one person was grappling with and the other person provided, like, support and, like, cheerleading? That, to me, does not read as a romance, even if the ending is the two of them sitting in a bathtub full of bubbles with glasses of champagne. You know, it doesn't matter. If it's congratulatory... You did it versus we did it. That is often the other key factor. That's really interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Which gives you the sort of, which is where the line starts to get blurry. Of course. With a lot of the books that are being written now in the first person, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because it's really, what's interesting is like, this was not the case when first person really like, came into being in 2012 in romance, mm-hmm. right? It was ne- it was never like I'm you know alone on my journey and this person is congra- congratulating me for my successes. It was always like I'm alone on my journey and now this person is joining me on my journey and like punching right. out bad guys and like, you know, we're going to win the day. But now a lot of these books are Single POV, first person, heroine perspective. I'm thinking about for the shorthanded, a lot of these books that have car- like illustrated covers, mm-hmm. right? Are first person. And the journey feels yeah. singular right. in many ways. Back to a kind of Bridget Jones style of writing. And it's nice to find someone to be with you and they're, but they're kind of ancillary to that like personal journey and personal triumph. We are very far into this, but now I'm sort of thinking if this is where rom-com comes from, right? Because if you think about rom-com as a text, a cinema, a text in cinema, Mm -hmm. it's often like girl against the world. Yep. Boy comes in in the third act. Yep. As like a support character. Right. I mean, he's there the whole time, but, like, he becomes very valuable in the third Right. Act. I mean, like, Working Girl is maybe a good example of that. Like, I loved Working Girl. I love that movie, and I love that she ends up with, you know, Han Solo at the end. But the fact of the matter is, like, at the like, she has to solve her mergers it's and her. acquisition problem. And at the end, he's basically Moonstruck, like, you're fucking like, amazing. Right? Yeah. You've got mail. All these movies are, like, yeah, kind of, like, woman in the world. Which would make sense that that's why, that's what we're looking, when we say rom-com, maybe it's less the calm and more the like. Yeah, that part of it, maybe. Yeah. You know, what did I hear? I heard a new framing for romantic, romantic fiction? Maybe. what they're calling it now? Maybe. Right. I don't know. It's real, but no, there's something here, right? It's about partnership. It's about how it nets out how it is it's always about how it it's ends it's about participation in the romance mm-hmm. yes um yeah i mean it does ultimately always come down to how it ends in the romance you're now, right 
the tricky thing, of course, is there are plenty of people writing single character point of view and it's a romance, right? Yeah, I'm so, I, well, I, I made sure. that clear, right? Sure, I sure. Mean, I, I just want to make if sure. If I did not right? make that clear, let me be clear that I... But it's yes. always about the end, right? And for me, that's it. It's like, is it like, congratulations, you did it? Or is it like, hey, we did it? That's really smart, Jen. Look at you. You're so smart. I try, Sarah. Romance reasons. Problem solved. There is. We did it. <laughs> you guys, but listen, don't put fucking books at the end. If someone's dead or got hit by a train or they're not together. Meh. Yeah, if she gets hit by a train, it's not a romance. If she's like at the fucking hands of a sexual predator. Yes, <laughs> no. And like the instinct is to say like, oh, well, there's a love story. Some people like sad love stories. Well, not romance readers. No, right. That's it's a sad <laughs> love story. That's a great novel. Make an end cap that says sad love story. Yes. <laughs> God, yes. That would be amazing, P.S. The first bookseller or librarian who makes who makes an end cap with like Nicholas Sparks. If you need a box of John Kleenex Green. to read that book, it is not a romance. That, I can say that with authority. Um, no, here's the thing. If you're making an end cap and you want some help, just DM Call us, us on Oh Twitter. my God, let me help us. Like, please. We would love it. If you would like to have a Fade and Mates end cap at your bookstore or library, let us know. We would be thrilled to help you. We would crush it. Oh my God, <laughs> we would totally crush it. <laughs> we'll send you stickers for you to like... <sighs> Yes. Give to your patrons who take Please. out romance novels. Let us help you. <laughs> Let us help you. We love you. Um, we love romance. This is good. We didn't talk about sex, but shorthand is like sexual tension is essential. Sex is not. There you go. You just did it right? in one sentence. Miss Scarlet and the Duke, episode five. <laughs> just go watch that. <laughs> um, and... I don't know. I mean, I hope this was useful. My brain is a little bit mushed right now. That's okay. It's like a, it'll be interesting or not. And you know what? If you know this already, Eric will tell us. He'll be like, "Mm, I took out a bunch. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to be like, why'd they say it was an hour and a half and it's only 43 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If this, if this episode is under an hour, you know, Eric saved you. (laughs) I don't even care. It's deadline week for Sarah and grade report writing for me next week. So, you know. You can pre-order Bombshell <laughs> at your nearest bookstore. Oh, you did the cover reveal and Oh, everything. I did. We didn't even talk about that. A couple oh. weeks ago, I revealed the cover on Twitter Love and it. everywhere. Uh, there was a piece in Entertainment Weekly. We'll put it in show notes. Of course. A little self-promo. A little promo for Sarah. You know what? This It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. I'm really, really proud of this cover. It's awesome. Very proud of this cover. It's a little bit different and a little bit fun. And I think it looks it it looks like the series in my head. Yay. And it's coming August 24th. So get ready. That's that week's uh, episode. Sorted. <laughs> Between now and then, who knows? <laughs> well, at some point soon, we're going to... Mary Balo is the next read-along. That's all you okay. need to know. Here, I mean, we have some... I really today was like, gosh, we still have a podcast that somebody bid on. Yes, Katie Robert bid on a podcast in a charity. I think about it all the time. It's okay. We got to do it, Katie. If you're listening, you're probably not. But if you're listening, we didn't forget. We're still planning on it. Can we just like drop this? Like, listen, we're not going to do Outlander. Remember at the beginning, we said no. We said we we lied. We lied. Just we're not going to do the flame and the flower. We're not going to do Outlander. We're just. You know what? 
We said season three yeah, was we're boob. back on our bullshit, and we we're like, and our bullshit yeah. includes making promises <laughs> we don't keep. Honestly, it does. <laughs> oh, I, I go back sometimes and listen to old ones for romance reasons, for mostly reasons having to do with show notes. And now there's so many things we said we were going to do. It's fine. I don't care. Oh, really? None of it matters. Well, if, if there's anything that sounds like it's fun, <laughs> let us tell. We're, we're sometimes like, hey, what do we do this week? So, um, if you have something, by the way, that you'd like us to yeah, do, let us know. We sometimes get great requests. Shoot us a DM or a text if you know us. <laughs> Find us on Facebook at Old School Romance Book Club, OSRBC, Facebook.com slash OSRBC. Um, that's where you can find people who also listen to Faded Mates. There's also an IAD read-along that's just now wrapping up. It, last week was Room Week. Um, if you haven't read Cressley Cole's Immortals After Dark, we did an entire first season on it. But that was before we had, like, a whole lot of you. We had a very small percentage of the people who listen to the podcast now then. Jen and I are trying to figure out a way for us to gently introduce you to IAD without doing another 18 episodes, which is always my instinct when I want to talk about IAD. I do have an idea, which is I think we should talk about, like, oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about this. You know, like the things that we think of. Yeah. Fun. Fun. And that will also, and we'll do like a little 20-minute introduction to the series for those of you who've never read Paranormal or don't really know how to start. Um that's coming um anyway you can find our website our website is has a new redesign go check it out if you haven't seen the beautiful main page uh it's fadedmates.net and then if you click explore on that page it'll take you in to find transcripts and gear and links to music that is in the podcast um and pins from best friend kelly and stickers and gear from joe jordan denae um we are we have it all we're produced by eric mortensen we are indeed and if you like us uh you please subscribe and uh, leave us a review on your friendly podcast all right we're gonna wrap it up go write that book sir (laughs) okay bye everyone